Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're going to go through Isaiah 7 and 8 today, um, but there's something important that we need to lay down before we get into 7 and 8, because starting in chapter 7 of Isaiah, we're entering into the historical context of what's happening in the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And we've talked the previous weeks about how the nation had split. You've got Judah in the south. You've got Israel in the north. Each kingdom has their own separate king. And we've, we've kind of been working through this concept, but it's been very difficult to kind of wrap your head around uh, what this area looks like. So I want to start off this morning uh, with a map. So if you put the first map up on the screen, what you're looking at is uh, the area of the Middle East. Um, and what you're looking at here is you've got like, this is Egypt down here, Sinai Peninsula. This is Israel, kind of like modern day stuff. You got Saudi Arabia, you got Iraq. Um, this is kind of the area of the world where, that we're looking at in this time period. Now I'm showing you this because I'm gonna be covering, like this section, this story covers a lot of different characters in the story. When I say characters, I'm talking about the kings of these nations and also uh, the nations themselves. So what we're talking about in Isaiah 7 and 8 is also found in 2 Kings 15 through 16 and 2 Chronicles 27 through 28. So if you are like a super Bible nerd, that's your homework this week. Like after we discuss, go read 2 Kings 15 through 16 and 2 Chronicles 27 through 28, and you'll get the background on what's happening with these specific kings. But let me set up what's happening for you. Um, and my apologies kind of for the map. Uh, I'm gonna post this up on Slack later so you can see some of the areas because there's other things on here like the city of Nineveh, um, some, you know, kind of some other like this, this little area here is Babylon. It's very difficult for you to see. This is the Medo-Persian Empire here. This is Assyria. Israel's in the north. Judah's in the south. And you see lots of other colors because these are the other, <clears throat> excuse me, these are the other uh, uh, like tribes in the region. So you got Philistines up here in Damascus. You've got another uh, uh, nation called Syria. And so what we have today uh, is the nation in the south, Judah, and that's kind of like this. I apologize, my hands are so shaky. Uh, this area here, this little green blob where, uh, where, it's, where it says Judah, right here, this is the southern kingdom of Judah. All right, so that's the first major player. And the king of Judah at this time is this guy named Jotham. J-O-T-H-A-M, Jotham. Now, so he's the first character. You got Jotham and Judah. Then up here in Israel, the northern kingdom, you've got this king named Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, Pekah. So now we've got two kind of kingdoms, and these are the, considered the people of God, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. So you've got Jotham and Pekah over here. Now we've got two other kingdoms to add to it. All right, you've also got a kingdom right here in red, my apologies for not labeling it, but right here where it says Damascus, this is the nation of Syria, 
okay? Syria is, is uh, run by this guy named Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N, okay? I hope you brought your notebooks because half of you are just like, I didn't know that this is the kind of church this was. Like, I, I don't want to go to college. But, but trust me, uh, oh, thank you, uh, Lyle's gonna put it up there. So you've got Judah, you've got Israel, you've got Syria right here, Syria's red, uh, led by Rezin, and then you've got the big bad boogeyman, Assyria, and he's represented over here in this area. And Assyria is led by this guy named Tiglath-Pileser. You got all that? All right, now that you know the characters, let me give you the story. You've got Judah, you've got Israel, you've got Syria, you've got Assyria. Don't get those two confused. Here's what's going on at this time period. You have got the nation of Assyria, the big giant, starting to wreak havoc in all of the nations around here. All right, Babylon's not really in play. The Medo-Persian's not really in play. These are the big power players of the time. Assyria is the big bad boogeyman in the area. And what, he, what they're doing is they're constantly coming in and trying to overtake these nations. So Assyria is the big threat to these areas. So Israel decides the best way that we can take on Assyria is if we form an alliance with Syria so that we can fight them together. So Israel and Syria join together in an alliance that eventually becomes known as the Syro-Ephraim War, the Syro-Ephraim Alliance. Now, it's called Ephraim because Ephraim was one of the major tribes in the north, and they just kind of refer to themselves as Israel and Ephraim. They're kind of synonymous. So what we have is Israel and Syria joining forces to fight Assyria, but they knew that they weren't strong enough to overtake Assyria. So here's what they do. The two kings, uh, the kings of Assyria and Assyria, they go to Israel and Syria, they go down to Judah, Jotham, and they say, hey, join our coalition because the three of us together, we can overtake Assyria. And Jotham says, No. Well, as you can imagine, this really makes Israel and Syria mad. So they just kind of backtrack and they start deciding, okay, we're gonna make some plans. What what could we possibly do? Because we need the war and the, 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 we need the soldiers of Judah to join forces. So they just kind of wait until Jotham dies and his son Ahaz takes the throne. So when Ahaz takes the throne, what happens is Israel and Syria threaten Judah, Ahaz. And they say, we're gonna come down and we're gonna make war with you and we're gonna remove you off of your throne and we're gonna replace you with some puppet king who will do what we want and then we'll have our three country alliance that can then take on Assyria. You guys with me? So you've got the Northern Kingdom making alliances with Syria and threatening to come down to Judah and fight them to kick the king out of his seat, to put him, put a new puppet king in in charge so that the three of them can now take on Assyria. So here's what Judah is struggling with, Ahaz, and this is what we're getting into in the text. When we get into uh, the text today, you've got King Ahaz of Judah, and he's got two main issues. Assyria wants to destroy Judah, and now Israel and Syria want to destroy Judah. 
And Ahaz, the king of Judah, has to make a decision. At 20 years old, when he takes the throne, he has to decide, am I going to trust God or am I going to find a stronger alliance? Now we know that that's kind of a ridiculous comparison because you're not gonna find a stronger alliance than God. But that is the issue that Ahaz is facing in his day. I've got people up here coming for me. I've got people over here coming for me. Do I trust that God is going to save the day and keep the line of David, because Ahaz is a descendant of David, pure and the country is gonna be fine, or do I find some other alliance with other tribes? Maybe I go down to Egypt, maybe I go talk to Assyria. Maybe I could find some other way to form an alliance against these guys and now we can fight and we can destroy them. That is the setting for today. So if you wanna jump down to, I put a couple other maps so you can kind of jump in and see. Go to the next one. <clears throat> this is kind of a closer look. Uh, zoomed in, you've got Judah down here, Israel, Syria, Assyria. And if you go down to the next one, it's just kind of even a zoomed in. This gets you a sense of kind of the scope of the land, okay? I'll post all these online later. But you've got Syria up here, Israel, Judah. These are kind of the main players. Judah's afraid because these guys are pairing up together and also you've got Assyria. Now, I want you to turn, uh, thank you for that, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter seven, and let's go to verse one. And I want you, as you, as you start turning there, and we'll put it up on the screen, I want you to be thinking about this theme that Isaiah is, or that Ahaz is struggling with. Do I trust God or do I trust the world? Do I put my trust in what God says that he will do in his word or do I trust the world and alliances that I form? And the reason why this is so important to keep in your mind is because this theme is gonna run through the next 30 chapters. It's starting today, but this theme is going to be recurring over and over and over again. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Who do you put your trust in? Do you trust the world? Do you put your alliances with them? Or do you trust God that he's gonna somehow work it out in ways that you can't possibly fathom and understand? This is the main theme. As God's people, do we trust him and his word and his ways, or do we make worldly alliances that give us some kind of short-term result, but always end in longer-term slavery? And I'm telling you, this applies in everything. This applies in your relationships, your careers, your social issues, church issues, sanctification. Should I marry this girl who's not a believer because we've got a connection and things will be good for a little while, but knowing that the moment I have children, it's gonna be all out war about where we go to church because she doesn't even believe there's a God. You follow? In my career, do I just stay where I am and form an alliance with where I am and it's not great, but there are some good things that my boss constantly shouts at me and I can't stand where I work, but do I just sit still and not do anything or do I follow what God is saying and, and go out and start looking for other opportunities for things? The church, do we as a people trust that what God's word says is enough or do we start going out to the world to ask them to speak into our life about how we can reach the lost? You follow, this is applicable everywhere. Do we trust 
that what God says is enough and all we have to do is follow it? Or do we, are we convinced that the world has input into how we follow God and we let that stuff start creeping into our life and we start forming alliances that bring some short-term gain but long-term slavery? You with me? That's gonna be the theme for a little bit. So let's get into it. Isaiah 7, verse 1. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, cool, we're all up to speed if you were able to follow me, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. All right, so you got Pekah in Israel, you got Rezin in Syria, you got uh, Ahaz in Judah. So Syria and um, Israel, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel, the Syro-Ephraim alliance, the heart of Ahaz, the king of Judah, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, I want you to go out and meet Ahaz. And I want you to take She'er Yashub, your son. She'er Yashub is Isaiah's son. And his, that word, his, his name means a remnant shall return. Yeah, he's real prophetic in, in that kind of everything. Like even the way he's naming his son. So I can imagine like Isaiah, he's going up to meet Ahaz and Ahaz is like, hey, got your boy here. What's this? Uh, this is my son, a remnant shall return. Wow, that's a little on the nose, Isaiah. So he goes to meet Ahaz, and he brings his son. Look where he meets. Now this seems weird, but we'll come back to this. So Isaiah goes out to meet Ahaz, he brings his son, and they meet, verse three, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. That's unbelievably specific. All right, now we'll come back to that in a minute. I just want you to remember that. So Isaiah comes out to meet Ahaz and they're meeting on the conduit of the upper pool, the highway to the washer's field, and Isaiah says to him, Ahaz, this is the word of the Lord. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves. And then we'll take the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. That's the coup we were talking about. We're gonna come down and destroy you and when we do, we're gonna replace you with this guy named Tabiel. Well, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now let's pause there. Because at this point, the conflict has begun. Israel and Syria are coming in to replace Ahaz with this guy named Tabiel, but he's not important. You're not gonna see him again because this actually isn't gonna happen, but the threat is very real. So Isaiah goes and meets Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, the highway to the washer's field, and the, simple, the, the message of God is this. What, what do I do? Ahaz, Ahaz says, what do I do? 
I've got these foreign alliance coming. I've got Assyria coming. I've got trouble from every corner. What do I do? And Isaiah says, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, and don't be anxious. God says this is not going to stand, and it's not going to come to pass. Boom. It's done. It's settled. You've got waging war at your door. What do I do? Don't do anything. Chill out. Relax. Go drink a Coke. Go read a book. Relax. Don't do anything. And don't even fear. Don't even be anxious about what might possibly happen. Don't spend your time getting worked up and spun up about what might be possible. Just let it go. And then Isaiah finishes in verse 9 with this command. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So Ahaz, don't do anything. And just a quick reminder, if you're not firm in faith, if you're not going to trust God, then you're not going to be firm at all. Now, in verse 4, he was commanding Ahaz. He was saying to him, you be careful, you be quiet, do not fear. He's saying that to Ahaz. But in verse 9, the, the you switches to a plural you. So Isaiah is not just talking to Ahaz at this point. This last sentence, he's addressing the entire house of David. He's addressing all of Judah. You, collectively, if you're not firm in faith, you're not firm at all. And that brings us to one of our first strong applications. This is important for us to understand. And the reason why is because we can be firm in lots of things that don't matter. We can be firm in our convictions. Uh, we can be co uh, firm in our giftings. We can be firm in our resources. We can be firm in our relationships. We can be firm in our strategies and how we approach life and, and how we approach work. And we can be good and firm in all those things. But the Lord is telling us through Isaiah, who is telling Judah, it doesn't matter what you're firm in. If you're not firm in trusting God, then you aren't really firm in anything. So you can be the master of whatever has been placed in front of you. You can be an expert in any specific field. But if you lack the trust and the faith to be able to walk by faith that God is going to work all things together for, his good, for your good and his glory, then you really aren't firm in anything. That's the message to Isaiah. It's the message to Judah. And it's the message to us. The thing that really matters in life is your capacity to walk by faith. Let's go to verse 10. This is the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Now at this point, some time has passed. This is not the same conversation up on uh, the, pool, the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is another time where the Lord told Isaiah, go and speak to Ahaz. So again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is Isaiah speaking to him. Ahaz, verse 11, Isaiah says to him, ask a sign of the Lord your God and let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So like, look, ask the Lord for a sign that he's actually going to do what he said he was going to do. He said you don't have to do anything and he's going to take care of it. Ask him for a sign to prove his faithfulness and ask for a big one. Like one that's wild, like your wildest imagination. You don't get many of these opportunities. 
Ask for a sign that is as deep as hell and as high as heaven. Go wide, baby. But Isaiah said in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Wow. Isaiah, you are such a strong religious man. How, how, who would I? I would not dare to ask of a sign from the Lord. He's being very pious. But I wonder if his piety is because he, he honors and respects the Lord, or I wonder if he doesn't want to ask a sign because he's already made other plans. Now, if you go read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, it's the latter. He's not asking the Lord for a sign because it's pointless. He's already made up his mind. He doesn't need a sign from the Lord because he's already made other plans. Verse 13, and he said, hear then, O house of David. So Isaiah says to Ahaz as a response to him not wanting a sign, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself, he's gonna give you a sign anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, Israel and Syria, they will be deserted. All right, now let's pause there. A little time has passed since the first section of the prophecy up in the beginning of seven to this second encounter that Isaiah has uh, with Ahaz. Uh, we don't know how much time has passed, but we know the point in time that this moment happens. It's right at 735 BC. The Syro-Ephraim alliance is creeping in and Isaiah tells Ahaz, just ask for a sign but we know the sign really isn't for God to prove his faithfulness, it's, it's to expose Ahaz's heart and expose his heart it does because he refuses the sign because he's already made other plans. Well, this refusal aggravates a, uh, Isaiah and so Isaiah says, you know what, you may not want a sign but the Lord's gonna give you one anyway and the sign is that a woman is going to get pregnant with a child and she's gonna birth that child and that child will be named God with us. And then we're told that before the child can refuse evil and choose the good, that Assyria, excuse me, that Israel and Syria will be deserted. Now I told you that this section, this conversation happened in 735 BC. In Jewish culture, a boy becomes a man at the age of 13. And at that point, he's treated like a person who knows the difference between good and evil. So you take 735 and you minus 13 years and you get 722, which is the year that Assyria came in and completely destroyed Israel. Isaiah is telling Ahaz, the Lord is gonna give you a sign and these two countries you're worried about won't even be in existence in 13 years time. So again, don't do anything. Well, the question now comes up and I asked it before, why did Ahaz refuse the sign? And we discussed because of what we learned in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that he has made other plans. What are these other plans? 
we're told in Kings and Chronicles that Ahaz, rather than listen to Isaiah the first time and just do nothing, gathered together as much money and gold as he possibly can, it was probably in the millions, and he went to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, and said, I'm hiring you to take out my threat. So rather than Judah trusting God, he went and made a foreign alliance with Assyria and paid them off to take out Israel and Syria. And Assyria agreed. They took the money and they started an attack on Israel and Syria. Now here's the problem when you hire your enemy to stop a threat. When the threat is gone, your enemy is still your enemy. Ahaz hasn't fixed the problem. He's only made the problem worse. He's prolonged a short-term problem, but he's made himself a grander long-term problem. Things are now worse than they ever have been because you've hired, imagine like three mice fighting amongst each other and one of them hires a cat to come in and take the other two mice out. What do you think is gonna happen when the two mice are gone? He's gonna turn on you. And that's exactly what Isaiah says. Go to verse 17. Isaiah, know, uh, Isaiah knows that Ahaz has already made this decision. And this is the response. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed Judah. It's the king of Assyria. He's coming for you. See, in that day, the Lord, because of your decision, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come, not just Assyria, all these foreignized, the, the Philistines, the Egyptians, they're gonna start creeping in because they're gonna see that you're vulnerable. And they will come and they will settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. Here's something fun. In, in Hebrew, that word razor, what Isaiah uses there, it's actually the phrase drunken razor. So he's gonna shave your head with a drunken razor. I, I, don't, I don't wanna get in line for that. That sounds really painful. In that day, the Lord will shave with a drunken razor that is hired beyond the river, the king of Assyria. And he's gonna shave the head and the hair of the feet and he'll sweep away the beard also. No, not the beards. And in that day, here's how bad it's gonna get. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he'll, he will eat curds. And everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. There'll be so much milk that it'll, it'll start to curdle. And they'll be eating honey like kings. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it'll become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, a man will come there for the, all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns but they will become a place where the cattle are let loose and where the sheep tread. So Ahaz 
his alliance with Assyria is stopping his immediate threat, but he's putting himself in a position where he has now doomed his entire nation of Judah. Because Assyria is not going to stop when they conquer Israel and Syria, they're gonna come down and conquer Judah too. And they're gonna conquer and they're gonna kill and they're gonna wipe out so many people in the land. They're gonna swarm the land like insects and there will be so few people in the land that everything in the land, all the animals, all the crops, they'll start overgrowing because there won't be enough people to tend the land. Fields that were filled with grapevines and yielded tons of shekels of profits because of the wine from those fields, they'll just overgrown with, with briars and brush because there's nobody there to tend it because all the people have been killed in war because Assyria has come in and wiped and just scorched earth. There'll be so few people that the, that the poorest among them that are left, they're gonna eat like kings. They're gonna have curds and milk and honey every night for dinner because there's so few people living in the land. And all of this is because Isaiah decided to make a foreign alliance with Assyria rather than trust God. Now, let's pause for just a second. Because Isaiah is telling Ahaz that this is gonna happen. I want us to jump forward in history about 34 years from this point in history, and I want us to examine how every single thing that Ahaz said came true excuse me, every single thing that Isaiah said came true. So you've got Ahaz and Isaiah standing here having a conversation and Isaiah says, because of what you did, the people in the future are gonna suffer. And I can just imagine Ahaz being like, meh, at least it's not me. Well, let's jump forward in history 34 years. 34 years in the, in the, history, in the, in the future, Ahaz is now gone, he's dead, and his son, Hezekiah, has taken the throne. So 34 years in the, in the future, Hezekiah is king of Judah, and guess what? Israel's gone, Syria's gone, and Assyria has creeped into Judah and has conquered every city in the region. The only city that has not been conquered yet is Jerusalem. And in, uh, a military leader from Assyria is sent to meet Hezekiah to discuss terms of surrender because it looks like all is lost. Go to Isaiah chapter 36 verse two and I want you to see where this military leader meets with Hezekiah to discuss the terms of surrender. 36.2, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, which is a title for a military leader, from Lachesh to king, to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is exactly where Isaiah told Ahaz to do nothing. And he refused. Rather than listen to the Lord, he made other arrangements. And now his son is paying the price for his decisions. Your lack of faith or your capacity to live in faith always impacts future generations. 
Listen to me, dads. Listen to me, moms. Listen to me, grandparents. Your walk of faith, or lack thereof, never stops with you. It always impacts the next generation. You want to know why your kids don't want anything to do with church? Now, I'm not speaking directly to you. I'm speaking like I'm painting with a very broad brush. You know why young people don't want anything to do with church? Because they watch their parents badmouth the church on the ride home for seven years. Do you know why people, young people don't want to walk in faith and have no capacity to, to believe God for anything? Because they watch their mom and their dad make alliances in the world and modeling faith was not a thing in their home. They were never, it was never demonstrated to them, we're trusting God for this. I don't have an answer but we're gonna trust God and I'm gonna parent by faith and I don't know what the outcome's gonna be, but I believe that God will work. No, 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 that's not what was modeled. What was modeled was this hard work capacity to, for the father or the mother to do whatever was necessary and God was not in the center of any of the decision-making processes and that is the reason why generations are growing up and want nothing to do with the Lord because it was not modeled for them. And I see this constantly. I see this, uh, I, I, I see this principle played out in so many different ways. The principle being, if you fail the faith test that God puts your way, ultimately your children are gonna have to take it in your place. Now I'm, I'm gonna be sensitive here because I don't wanna be one of those preachers that stands up here and says this is something that always happens and you better be careful because you're dooming your kids. No, God's grace works in mysterious ways and it's not always like this, but for most cases, what I see and what I have seen in my experience as a pastor is that when a dad says, I'm not gonna conquer this sin, guess who starts struggling with that same sin when they start turning 25 and 30 years old and they have a family? When a mom says, I'm not going to surrender this. And we're not just talking about like habitual sin or things that we as a church would say like, oh, these are the bad ones. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about gossip. I'm talking about lack of faith. I'm talking about uh, your, your inability to walk with confidence, that you're, you're paralyzing fear that, that everything comes and creeps in and it doesn't matter what decisions happen, you're constantly wringing your hands. Guess who learns that behavior from you and then carries it into another generation? Look, you may not like it, but it's your children. And I've counseled enough to see this happen over and over and over. And I'm telling you, one of the greatest things you can do for your family is go ahead and conquer that thing that torments you now so that your kids don't have to take that test later. Man up and face it head on because if you don't, you may not like it, but you're gonna pass it down to them just a simple learned behavior, not even a spiritual principle, but just simple learned behavior. And your inability to get your drinking under control, you're gonna see that in your children. Your inability to get your mouth under control, you're gonna see that in your children. 
We see it in Ahaz, we see it in Hezekiah. Children picking up the disobedience learned from their parents and having to take the same test. Now, we'll get there when we get to Isaiah 36, but Hezekiah, praise God, he passes the test. When Assyria comes knocking, he doesn't make another foreign alliance. He runs to Isaiah and he says, what do I do? And Isaiah says, because of your repentance and your heart, the Lord is gonna push back your enemy and Assyria never takes Jerusalem. But we'll get there. Go to Isaiah chapter eight. Let's jump back to where we are. Isaiah eight verse one, it says, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. This tablet, it belongs to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Verse three, and I went to the prophetess, this is Isaiah's wife, and she conceived and bore a son. So Isaiah, after this conversation with Ahaz, he's told, I want you to take a tablet and I want you to write down that this tablet belongs to this name and then I want you to go spend some time with your wife. She's gonna conceive and bear a son and I want you to name the son. Verse three, then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my mother or my father, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And the Lord spoke to me again, because the people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and they rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it's gonna rise over the channels and it's gonna go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, and it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it's not gonna stand, for God is with us. It's a mocking way to end that sentence. So two times, you see verse eight, O Emmanuel, and verse 10, God with us, which means Emmanuel. That comes right after the prophecy of the child being born and called Emmanuel. And we have a child being born in chapter eight, but he's not named Emmanuel. So there's a lot of discussion about who this child is in Isaiah 7:14. Was this some random child that was born? Is this Ahaz's son, Hezekiah? Probably not, because Hezekiah was probably five or six at the time that this happened. I believe, um, like a lot of commentaries do, that this child that Isaiah spoke of in 714 is this child in 8.4, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now the question is why isn't, why, why don't they have the same name? God says to Ahaz, there's a sign I'm gonna give to you, a child's gonna be born, and before the kid reaches 13, these nations you're worried about are gonna be destroyed. Isaiah, I want you to go home, spend some time with your wife, I want you to have a child, and I want you to name this child Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now the name 
Emmanuel means God with us. The name Maher Shalal Hashbaz means speedy spoil, but hasty plunder. So what's happening here is Isaiah is being offered a sign that he doesn't want. And so God says to Isaiah, I want you to go have this child, but no, don't name the child Emmanuel. Name it speedy spoil and hasty plunder because what my people wanted instead of me, they didn't want God with me, with them. They didn't want God with us. What they wanted instead was a fast solution to their problems, but it's gonna bring a plunder unto them. That's what's happening in these verses. God said a child's gonna be born but you didn't get what you wanted because you chose something else. This is why Emmanuel is referenced in eight and 10 because it speaks of what could have been. God could have been amongst his people, but they chose to reject him. But the prophecy has a larger significance as well. And we spoke when we kicked off this message series, Isaiah, that prophecy always has a foretelling and a foretelling aspect. There's also, there's always a type and a shadow. So what's happening here is that this child, Emmanuel, was a, a, was a, a prophecy for Ahaz at the time. It stood as a reminder. Every, I, mean, I imagine this kid like going to school and every time Ahaz sees this kid, I imagine Hezekiah and Meher Shalal Hashbaz playing out on the, out on the, uh, the, the, uh, the playground and, and Ahaz comes and picks him up after school. And he's like, you know, come on, Hezekiah. Hello, speedy spoil, hasty plunder. It, I mean, this kid growing up in this culture was a constant reminder of the stupid decision that Ahaz made. But it didn't end there because this was also a type and a shadow. We're told in Matthew 1.23 that there was an ultimate fulfillment of this child and his name was Jesus. And that's the beauty of it. Because what you see here is a Syro-Ephraim alliance bearing down on Judah but what we have is a sin and death alliance bearing down on us. You've got real threats in Judah and God says, I'll take care of it. And you've got eternal threats today and God says, I'll take care of it. And the way I'm gonna take care of it by, is by being among you. I will come, it's not just a, a, a nice thought that God is with us, so be okay. No, literally God is with us, he took on human form, and this prophecy was fulfilled in an even greater way than it was in the time of Isaiah, because now we've got this threat from the kingdom of darkness that our King Jesus overcame, because he was the child who was born of the virgin and grew and overcame this alliance. So. As we finish, I want us to turn our attention right back to Isaiah real quick, because the Lord ends chapter eight by speaking to Isaiah about what he's supposed to do. How do you live among a culture that has completely rejected the Lord? They don't want anything to do with him. They would rather make foreign alliances than trust God. What do you do as a person of faith living among these people? God tells Isaiah chapter eight, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. 
And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. I feel like we've heard that somewhere before. To both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken. And they shall be snared and taken. So bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children of whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So what is the result of an entire generation turning from the Lord? Darkness fills the land, there's distress, there's hunger everywhere, there's doom and gloom, and the daily news report is nothing, about, nothing but doom and gloom, and everyone complains about their leaders, and people seek spiritual answers from the dead because no one wants to seek the Lord for the answers. No one's interested in his book because everyone's convinced that the answer is out there, not in here. And it is in this generation that Isaiah has been called to live. How should he live among a people of darkness? Don't walk in their ways. Avoid conspiracy theories. Do not live in fear. Do not live in dread. But live in a way that the the holiness that you live in is contrasted with the wickedness around you. Can you see the parallels with where we live today? Can you see the similar trajectory of cultures that reject God? And can you see the calling we have to live in this culture of salt and light? And can you see the parallels when you hear Isaiah saying he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling? Can you hear Peter and Paul in Romans 9:33 whispering in your ear about a stone of offense and how the cornerstone was rejected? The truth is that our day looks unbelievably similar to the days of Isaiah. People are walking in thick darkness. And if I were to end the message today with that, I would be doing you a great disservice because that's not the end of the story. The truth is, this is what is. People are walking in darkness. And some of those people walking in darkness think that they are the sons and the daughters of God. They think that they belong to the Lord, but more of their life is marked by fear and regret and darkness than light. So what is the message for a world walking in darkness? Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Emmanuel, the promise, God with us, in the middle of the deep darkness that spews from our phones and our TVs on a daily basis, on that a light has shone. And you are ambassadors of that light. You carry that light within you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. So in a similar manner for Isaiah being called to live among dark people but be a light, we also are people of light living among a dark culture. So how do we live? we look at what God told Isaiah. We don't form alliances with this world to achieve things that God has already promised for us. We do not give ourselves to darkness or busy our lives with conspiracy theories. We do not fill our lives with fear and darkness like the world around you. Some of the best advice that I could give you today is stop watching the news. Turn off your social media accounts for the next six months and watch what happens to your joy. Suddenly it's going to return, I promise. Because there is a relationship to, look, darkness is out there, it's real, but ask yourself, how much of an awareness do I need in the little world that God has called me to live in? Some of you in this room have been given great responsibility to step into that sphere and speak on that regularly. But for some of you, your, spirit, your, your sphere is this big and your gifting is equipped for this sphere of influence and you keep stepping out of that thinking that you need to be a subject matter expert on all kinds of things in the world when you haven't gotten your faith right. So the best advice I could give you is for a season, shut it off. Stop letting the world shout at you and you will be surprised at how bright your light can be in the darkness that is the closest to you. So this is how I wanna close. Let the light and the love of Christ shine through you. That is what you need to be doing with your life because for unto us a child has been born. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.